Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes, the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field on your belly, you shall go and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread Till you return to the ground for out of you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let me pray. Lord, we recognize our need for your help in understanding your word and in loving your word and in submitting to your word and rejoicing in your word. Lord, for it points us to you. Lord, it points out our sin and your graciousness in the midst of it. I pray that we would see you in all the splendor of your holiness and majesty. And Lord, that we would see our sin reflected against that and it would be abhorrent to us. Not just the consequences of it, Lord, but the sin itself would be abhorrent to us for it is an offense to you. And Lord, I pray that as we see that and we see the effects of the sin in our lives, Lord, that we would see the fulfillment of Jesus in doing what we failed to do to reflect your glory back to you perfectly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, on Wednesday and Thursday night of this week, I had to do high school graduations. I had to do one for West High on Wednesday night and one for Liberty on Thursday night. And I had to shake like something like 1,200 students' hands and say, congratulations, congratulations, congratulations. And after a while, the smile starts to feel really fake and the hand gets kind of greasy. And, and I'm going through this whole <coughs> series of doing this thing. And I remember when I was driving to Liberty on Thursday, I was talking to a friend about politics. And it's, it's interesting that we... I don't know if you guys ever do this, but the kinds of weird things that go through my head are interesting. And and maybe you have weird scenarios too, but we were driving and, and she was talking about, um, 
this friend of mine was talking about her, all the jobs she has coming up working on various issues. And I said, you know, you will always have work in the political realm. And she goes, why? I said, because of the fall. Because of the fall, the government is always going to have to be reformed because man is always going to do what? Take it towards wickedness. And so you're always going to have work. I said, isn't it great that you get to make a profit off the fall? It's like a guaranteed profit until Jesus returns, right? If you can find a way to find out what the effects of the fall are going to be in the life of human society and man, you can profit off of it. Isn't that a sick thought? And so I'm thinking of how we could profit off of the fall and uh, the reality of it. And then I was, fall was on my mind. And so I'm sitting there on the stage and I'm watching all of these students, you know, coming in and listening to the graduation speeches and watch this whole thing and realizing I have to get up and give a speech here in a minute. And they've given me three minutes to talk about um, something about how I've been inspired by the world around me. And I thought to myself, I'm going to have to be really careful here because I could get the district sued. And I actually thought to myself, I'm going to talk about God somewhat generically, but I'm not going to talk about Jesus specifically because it's against the law for me to do so. And I sat there and I reflected on that. And I thought, wow, if that isn't an evidence of the fall, the very fact that if I as a public official stand up and use the name Jesus, I'm breaking the law. We face a lawsuit. His name is off limits. I thought to myself, I feel like going to the podium. I didn't do it, but I feel like going to the podium and saying, now students, now that you're adults, I want to clue you in on a reality that maybe you're not aware of. There is a word in American society that's illegal. I want you to know what it is. It's a five letter word. It starts with J and apparently it's dirtier than any other word. Because if I say it, we could be all be, the district could be sued. It's Jesus. It's pretty bad, isn't it? But I restrained myself because I was being mature and responsible. Isn't that sad? The effects of the fall have gotten so far that the one thing that that crowd of thousands of people, many of whom, but possibly most of whom, don't know that they're blind and lost and struggling with all of this sin. They're dead in it. The one thing they need to hear about is Jesus, and that's the one thing it's against the law for me to tell them about. That's sad. It's sad that we see the effects of the fall all around us all the time, don't we? And we see how it's rotted out our own government and continues to rot out our own government. But we also see how it rots out our own lives, our own relationship with Christ and our relationship with each other and our relationship even with the creation rots it all out. The fall affects everything and we see it all the time. Today, I want you to understand the story of the fall a bit. And I want you to see how the fall got man kicked out of God's kingdom. It got him kicked out of God's kingdom. And then the three relationships that are affected by that. And then I want you to point you toward the solution to it. So those, those are, that's kind of the, the direction I'm going. What's the story of the fall? How did it get us kicked out of God's kingdom? What are the three relationships that are affected by it? And what's the solution to it? Because it did. It got us kicked out of God's kingdom. Now, what do I mean by that? What do I mean that it got, it kicked out of, got, it kicked, got us kicked out of God's kingdom? If you were here last week, you heard about the beginning of the story. The beginning of the story in Genesis 1 and 2 is that God creates us for his own glory as our sovereign king. And we are his people in his place, the Garden of Eden, under his rule and blessing. And everything is perfect. The relationship between man and woman is what it's supposed to be. It's perfect without sin. The relationship between man and God is what it's supposed to be. It's perfect. It's without sin. The relationship between man and the creation is perfect. It's what it's supposed to be because we were perfectly in God's kingdom. And then man sinned. 
That's the story we read today. And when that happened, they were booted out of God's kingdom. Now, were they still on God's planet? And is God still sovereign over all things? Yes. But they were no longer, man was no longer, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing in the way that the Bible speaks about the kingdom of God. He no longer had a right relationship with God. And because he no longer had a right relationship with God, he no longer had a right relationship with his fellow man. And he no longer has a right relationship with creation. He's going to experience the effects of that until God returns to restore it all. Now he can get back into God's kingdom as a believer, but he's going to experience the effects of getting out of there, of being kicked out. So that's what we want to look at. Adam and Eve were in God's kingdom, right? They were God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And they experienced perfect rest, rest in a relationship with him or peace with each other and with the creation. However, the creation was corrupted by sin, right? It was corrupted by the fall. And as a result, he's kicked out. That's the simple story. We're just going to get to the depressing part mostly today, right? So let's start by looking, how it t- looking at how it took place. Look at Genesis 3, 1 through 6. How did this all take place? I want you to notice that Satan arrives, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. How do we know that the serpent is Satan? Because we can go forward to Revelation and find that out. The rest of the Bible explains to us the serpent is Satan. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So he starts right out of the gate by saying, did he really say you can't eat of any tree of the garden? So he's kind of questioning the word of God and he's kind of giving him a kind of presenting this half truth because God never said they couldn't eat of any tree in the garden. What did God say? You can eat of every tree except that one tree. And so Satan is trying to say, look at how oppressive and God is. He's trying to take things away from you. He doesn't want you to have any fun, does he? Look at him. He said you can't. Did he really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And she corrects him. She recognizes that Satan's wrong. So she corrects him. Look at verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. So I'm going to correct you. We can eat of any tree, just not that one. And if we do that one, we'll die. Why did that one tree, was it a magic tree? Did it have magic apples? No. First of all, we don't know what fruit was on the tree, right? It doesn't really matter whether there was any power attached to that particular tree or the fruit in it. What matters is God said, don't eat from it. And if you eat from it, you're disobeying me. And disobedience to my law equals death, period. And he goes on and he says this. So the woman, or excuse me, but the serpent said to the woman, verse four, you will not surely die. Now he just comes to outright lie. Okay. The half truth didn't work. I'll just go straight to the outright lie. You won't die. It's not going to happen. Don't trust that. Read on for God knows. That when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Hear what he's accusing God of. God's telling you not to eat of it because if you eat of it, you're going to be like him. He wants to keep something from you. You could know good and evil. Yeah. Exciting proposition, isn't it? Right now, all you know is good. You know, you could know evil too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Adam and Eve, right? The, uh, so he starts with a lie. They'll know evil because they'll participate in it. Do you hear that? Do you know that God knows evil because God is good and the opposite of what God is evil, right? Opposite of good is evil. God knows evil because he's good. You violate or transgress his law, which perfectly reflects his character, that's evil. That's how he knows it. He doesn't know it from experiencing it, from participating in it. He knows it because of who he is. Adam and Eve could know good and evil that way. They could know it because they know the good 
and they know God's command and they know to disobey it would be evil. What Satan is asking them is not just to know it in that regard. Satan is saying you could know it experientially. You could experience it. And so they're like, okay. He promises them that they can be like God, which is a lie. God didn't, hasn't experienced evil, but it's a lie. He was, you can be like him. You can exalt yourself. That's what he's appealing to. And uh, Eve was deceived, right? What happens? Look at verse 6. So that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it's a good tree for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired, it's kind of this lust starts to build, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now let's be clear here. 1 Timothy 2.14 is very clear that Eve, in this situation, was deceived. Satan deceived her. Adam, however, was not deceived. Adam was just flat out rebellious. It's not like he came on the scene um, later on. Adam was with her watching this whole exchange take place. And the serpent deceived Eve. That's what Paul says. Eve was the one who was deceived. Right? Not Adam. He's just flat out rebellious. He was in the garden with all of God's good gifts around him. Yet that one tree he couldn't eat from. And he thought to himself, I'm going to eat from that tree. I will eat from that tree. God cannot withhold that from me. And he ate from it. And everything changed. First thing that happens is you see that they were naked, right? They recognized they were naked. But I, I don't I want to get to that just yet. I want you to see the fallout from it. Look at Genesis chapter 4. The immediate fallout from the sin. Things are perfect. They're now sinned. They're kicked out of God's kingdom. And look what happens to the world. Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel. Look at verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. These are the two sons of Adam and Eve, right out of the gate. Cain is unhappy because God has accepted Abel's sacrifice and not his own. He gets jealous and he kills him. See the degradation of human society that's already starting? Relationships that are already being broken apart because they have, of sin? Look at chapter 5. One of my favorite chapters in Genesis, which seems like a weird chapter to really like because it's a genealogy, right? But why? I love this refrain because of the point that it makes. I don't love it because I'm sadistic. I love it because of the point that it makes. Look what happens. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he'd made him in the likeness of God, male and female. He created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered his son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had sons and other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Look at verse um, eight, talking about Seth. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died died look at verse 11 thus all the days of enosh were 905 years and he died look at verse 14 thus all the days of kenan were 910 years and he died verse 17 thus all the days of mahalel were 895 years and he died verse 20 thus all the days of jared were 962 years and he died verse 27 thus all the days of methuselah were 969 years and he died verse 31 thus all the days of lemek were 777 years and he died you you hear the point the point isn't that these guys lived a long time the point is they all died which is the promise 
that was made as the consequence of sin. Now look at Genesis chapter 6. You see murder. You see the certainty of death. Look at chapter 6. Verse 5. Men were raising up, taking advantage of women sexually, probably causing war against one another. In verse 5 we read this of chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then you read the flood and then you go forward to chapter nine. And what's interesting in chapter nine, after the flood, they come down and verse five, God knows what they're going to be doing. And look at what he says. And for your life, but I require a reckoning from every beast, beast I require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I require a reckoning for the life of man. Verse six of chapter nine, whoever sheds the blood of man by man, shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. What's he saying? He saved this man, Noah, and his family. They get off the ark to repopulate the world. And the first thing that God does is gives them a covenant. And part of that covenant is that there's a law with a penalty. Because he knows that man is going to start murdering man again. Is that a good statement about us? First thing off the ark. Okay, when one of you guys kill another one of you. Death penalties coming. What does that assume about the thoughts and intentions of man's heart? Look at chapter 11. He gives all these, all these nations. And then in chapter 11, verse 1, it says this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the, of Sh- in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, now listen to what they want to do. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. D- do you hear that? Let us make a name for ourselves. Just the pride in man. Do you guys see the effects of the fall just being unloaded here? We're going to see next week some pictures of redemption in the middle of them or God's grace in the middle of these effects of the fall. But what I want you to understand preeminently about Genesis chapter 3 through Genesis chapter 11 is it's a picture of what happened because Adam ate that fruit. And it's a very, very sad, bleak picture of what happened because Adam ate that fruit. And we need to make that clear. That's what that whole section is about. Genesis chapter 12, then God really begins the work of saying, I'm going to bring my Messiah, bring you back into my kingdom. But this is what it looks like when man is out of the kingdom of God. Do you hear that? When he's booted out of the kingdom of God, when he's no longer God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing, this is the effect. This is the picture of what it looks like. And that's what Moses is making clear. Well, there are three relationships affected in the midst of this. Three relationships. The first one is our relationship with God. When sin entered the world, we became lost or alienated from God's presence. What happens at the end of Genesis 3? God does what with Adam and Eve? He kicks them where? Out of the garden, right? God says, no more, you're out. You're out of my place, out of my presence, no longer under my blessing. You are no longer my people. And he boots them out. And now man is alienated from God because of his sin. He's lost. Man at this point is no longer God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Instead, man is described as lost, alienated, enemies of God. Certainly God is still ruling the earth, but to be in his kingdom in a biblical sense is to be his people in his presence under his rule and blessing. 
This perhaps the worst part of our spiritual condition is that we lose the joy of knowing and being in the presence of our God. And we're in a state of eternal separation. We lose him as our treasure in our sin. Well, I, I want to talk about the effects to our relationship with God that come out of that. And I'm going to be brief. And you're not going to think I'm going to be brief because I have 11 of them. <laughs> but, but trust me, I will be. 11 effects of the fall to our relationship with God. You ready? You don't have to write them all down. You can always listen to the sermon again. Um, but here they are. These aren't like the comprehensive list, you know, exhaustive, all-encompassing, completely correct. If somebody misses one of these, they're in sin. Here's just what I came up with. One, we are unable to do any spiritual good or truly seek God as a result of the fall. Unable. Do you hear that? Unable to do any any spiritual good or truly seek God as a result of the fall. Genesis 6 five through seven says the thoughts of man's heart were wickedness all the time. You guys hear that Genesis three, 10, or excuse me, Romans three, 10 and following says this, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one. That's a universal negative. No one seeks for God. No one is righteous. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Think Paul made that point clear enough? Look, this isn't a, rela- a, a reference to our ability to be good in relation to other men. Like, my next door neighbor, who is not a believer, is a pretty good guy in relationship to other people I know. This is talking about being good in relation to God. Do you hear the distinction there? When we are our standard, we're not looking so bad. When God is our standard, we're not looking so good. You hear the distinction there? God can no longer look look at man and give the moral judgment that he gave in Genesis 2. It is very good. We're now a walking lie, right? Instead of reflecting his image, we're now a walking lie. Two, not only are we unable to do any spiritual good or truly seek God, we are those without spiritual understanding. Those without spiritual understanding. First Corinthians two fourteen, Paul says this about the natural person. That's the person as a result of the fall. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He cannot understand the things of God. Their foolishness to him. He is not able. That's not a word of permission. That's a word of ability. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Look, it's not a reference to our, to our ability to understand anything. It's a reference to our ability to understand the things pertaining to God that we cannot really know him. I talk to unbelievers all the time. I'm sure you do. Also, I'm hoping you do. And I, <laughs> otherwise, you're probably not talking very much. But, the, uh, but I'm talking with them frequently. And I find that some of them know the truth, right? I can go through the gospel truth to them and they go, yeah, I assent to all that, but they don't really understand the gospel. Do you understand what I mean by that? There's a difference between saying, yeah, I get the logical flow or argument of the gospel and what it means. And I understand it. My heart is different because of it. I rejoice in it. Those are two different kinds of understanding. And the natural man does not rejoice in the things of God. doesn't understand them or know them in that way. Often the biblical word for know, in fact, most often, isn't speaking of some kind of distant knowledge like your intellectual. It's talking about knowing in the sense that a man knows his wife. It's an intimacy. It's a knowledge that is personal. 
Not that it's just a distant sort of thing. And the natural man cannot know God in that way. Third, we are those who suffer shame, right, as a result. We're those who suffer shame. We cover up. Genesis 3, 7. Look at 2.25 real quick because it's interesting how Moses ends the chapter uh, chapter 2 of Genesis and then goes into chapter 3. Chapter 2 of Genesis says this. And you're going, why does he throw this on? Does he have a weird imagination? All of a sudden, Moses just says in verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Thanks, Moses. That's helpful for the creation account. The two of them were naked and weren't ashamed. Why is that there? Well, you don't understand the context of that until you look down at chapter 3, verse 7, when he says this. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And look at verse 10. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. What's the issue here? What Moses is making clear at the end of Genesis 2 is that man was not suffering shame for his sin. Because he didn't have any sin. So he had nothing to be ashamed of. But the moment that man sinned, he had to cover himself up because he was ashamed. And you guys know how this happens and how you try to hide from shame. And what we're talking about here is not the good kind of shame necessarily. It's the kind of shame we try to cover up on our own attempts, right? We find a way to hide ourselves. We have our own fig leaves. Adam and Eve created some. They took a couple leaves and covered up their body parts. We do it a different way. We try to cover up our sins by lying about it or minimizing it, right? Because we're ashamed. Um, Or maybe we'll only confess the sins that we think won't make us look so bad to others. My tendency is to want to give you just enough for you to go, man, he's humble the way he shares that, but not enough to where you go, man, he's sick, right? Just enough. want to hit that line. We also cover up our sin by um, talking about sin in a corporate sense rather than a personal sense. We're all sinners. So you're in a small group, you're going around the circle and everybody goes, yeah, you go, I sin. You know how we're all sinners. We all lust and, you know, rather than saying, man, last week I was looking at porn and I'm feeling guilty and it was wrong. And can you help me? We say, you know, we all lust. We cover up by assuming enough time has passed to make our sin go away. Right? Just when time passes, we don't worry about it anymore. That was way in the past. We cover up by assuming, um, you know, everyone does it. I don't have to feel too bad about it. Everyone does this. Not so bad. We also are those who are now in fear. That's the fourth point. We are now in fear. Not only ashamed, we're in fear as we hide Genesis 3, 8 through 10, when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What a sad scene. This gracious and wonderful God who created them comes looking for them. And they run and hide. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. We're those who fear. So how do we hide from God? Well, we hide behind intellectual arguments about the existence of God, don't we? That's one way. That's how we hide. I don't believe God exists and here are the reasons why. Thus, I don't have to fear him as a result of my sin. Look, when you hear someone arguing vigilantly for atheism, you ought not to be angry with them. You ought to be sad for them because they are hiding and covering up because they're ashamed and they're afraid and they don't want to admit it to anybody. We hide behind some conception that We have this idea of God in our imagination that he's not really holy or angry about sin. Right? So we just make up a new God. We hide behind busy schedules. That's the way I like to hide. 
really busy schedules and the noise of life. So I don't have to stop and be quiet and realize and reflect and meditate on who I really am and who God really is. So I just cover it up and hide from it that way. We hide behind excuses that others are keeping us from God. It's their fault I don't go to church. I, that person angered me and so I don't want to go. There are hypocrites in that church. To which we all said, amen. 100% hypocrites. If you're not a hypocrite, raise your hand and we know who the biggest hypocrite in the room is, right? As we all point and stare, exposing even our increasing hypocrisy. All right, number five. We are those who are now experiencing guilt and thus we shift blame. Those experiencing guilt and then we shift, thus we shift blame. Verse 11, he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It's all her fault. It's that woman you gave me. Which is interesting because, you know, Adam is blaming two people here, isn't he? He's not just shifting the blame to Eve. Because he does say the woman you gave me. He's shifting the blame to God. If you hadn't given me her, I wouldn't have done any of this. Man, have any of you done that? I wouldn't have sinned except for that woman. See, Adam's doing it. And then look, goes on. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The devil made me do it. Wasn't my fault. Look, we feel guilt because we're guilty. And we don't like to feel guilt. So we either minimize our sin or most frequently find someone else to blame. It's not our fault. It's my parents' fault. Look, let me tell you about my upbringing, how I was raised, and how those people are at fault for everything that's wrong with me. Right? And I'll, let me make you a tree, a family tree of all of my family members' sins against me. I've actually been at a seminar where they had people do that. And then once you see all your family's sins against you, then you realize why you're such a jerk to your spouse. Right? It's because of them. I finally found the reason. Or we blame our spouse for our sin or our children or our church or our government, right? The man is keeping me down. We find someone to blame for our sin just as long as we don't have to just say, you know what? I'm a sinner. I was wrong. I did it. Had nothing to do with that other person. That other person may sin in a way I didn't like. That other person may encourage me to sin in a way I didn't like. But at the bottom of it all was my wicked heart. Just like Adam and Eve. Saying to God, it's this wife you gave me. Or this husband. Or these parents. Or these children you gave me. Sixth, we're faithless. We are faithless. Look at the unbelief of Adam and Eve. They don't trust God, do they? They don't trust that if they eat, they'll die. They just don't believe him. Faithless. Comes out with Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel because Abel's sacrifice to the Lord is accepted and Cain's is not. And the question becomes, why? What? The Bible only gives one insight into the whole story doesn't tell us anything else. A lot of people try to make all of these theories about, well, Abel's was a blood sacrifice and Cain's wasn't and he should have known and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think that the Bible gives any evidence that that's the issue here. Hebrews 11 gives us, I think, the best insight into it when he says that Abel's offering was given in faith. Cain's was not. In other words, it's a picture of faithlessness. He didn't trust God. Seventh, we're prideful. Do I even have to go into that? Adam and Eve decide they knew better than God. 
decided they knew better than God. Tower of Babel is a great picture of our pride, isn't it? We will exalt ourselves. We will exalt ourselves. We will do everything. We are undying in the exaltation of ourselves. You want me to give you guys a test of, of, of how prideful you are? I'll give you the test that's the hardest for me. Sometimes, Teresa doesn't even know this, I haven't told her, but sorry, babe. But sometimes I'm thinking to myself, you know, if I were humble, what I would do is I would go home and I would ask my wife, honey, why don't you tell me the areas where I could improve, the things that you see that I could really do better as a husband or a father, the things that you see that, you know, that are there and and just give her permission to tell me how I could love her better or the family better. Right? That'd be humility. And I think about it and then I go, no way. No way am I doing that. There's not a chance in the world that I'm going to ask. You want a test of your pride? Why don't you go home and ask your spouse today? How could I be a better spouse? Why don't you just let it all out and be honest? I want to hear it. See if you can get yourself to utter those words. And then to receive it with a spirit of thanksgiving. If you can pull that off, you're humble. I can't. I'm going to try, but uh, it's going to take me at least another week to get around to it. The, um, all right. Number eight. I'm not kidding. <laughs> Number eight. We are disobedient. Number eight. We are disobedient. Adam and Eve just flat out rebelled against God. We do all the time. Number nine. We're idolatrous. We give glory to someone or something other than God. That's what Satan tells them. You can be like God. Idolize yourselves. We don't worship wooden images, I realize, but we do worship hood ornaments. Right? I worship... My, I, I was just thinking about this yesterday. I was, I was brushing my teeth and I heard my son say, Hey, Daddy. Da, 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 da. I don't remember exactly what he said. And I was listening to his voice saying, Daddy, something or other. And I'm like, no. There's a sound I can worship. That's what I was thinking. It's sick, I know. But I love to hear. I'm just idolizing my child. Do you guys ever go through that? Just going, oh, that's. Anyways, all right. Sorry, you're just going to know how sick I am. Tenth, we are lustful. We are lustful. We have a passion desire for something. Um, Eve saw that the fruit looked good and desired it, right? And we just don't have sexual lust because I think we, we think sexual lust is all there is. Lust for money, lust for things, lust for power, lust for prestige. Eleven, we're liars. Serpent lied and, and so do we. Lie all the time, don't we? We lie in little, very, very deceptive ways. As we become mature Christians, we figure out better and more sophisticated ways to lie. Right. And that we call that maturity in Christ. Right. I've grown in my sanctification. I found ways to lie that other people don't notice so much and that I feel much less guilty about. Right. Okay. Second, not only has our relationship with God been screwed up, but our relationship with one another has been screwed up, has been harmed. Screwed up. Is that a theological term? It's fallen. Genesis three sixteen. Look there. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing in pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. He's talking here about a role reversal. He is not talking about in spite of some theologians who argue that what God's saying here is that your desire shall be for your husband. He was just talking about childbearing. Now he's talking about sexual desire, but he shall rule over you. Is this this some kind of contrast? So what is going on here? Some say is this is sexual desire that this woman is going to have this raging, uncontrollable sexual desire for her husband. Look, I don't know any husband that will ever complain that that's complain that that's an effect of the fall. I just can't take it, man. She won't leave me alone. I am so upset about the fall. I've I've never heard a man say that. Not once. Not once. That is not what this is talking about. I wish that was an effect of the fall. It was not. It was not an effect of the fall. What he's talking about here is the desire to control or manipulate. It's used in Genesis chapter 4 when God warns Cain that sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. Same Hebrew word. 
but you must master it. In other words, it wants to rule you. It wants to be your master. And what this is talking about is the idea that women want to rule. They want to be in control. And the men are supposed to be. And what's happened in the role reversal or confusion is that women now desire to be in control rather than submissive. And men now desire to rule in a way that is oppressive rather than it's loving and humble. It's all been screwed up. Look, the woman's role isn't the only part that's been screwed up. The man's role has been screwed up as well. Men don't want to lead in a way that's loving and women don't want to submit in a way that's loving. Neither one of them want to do it. I talk to people, couples in relationships all the time when I'm doing counseling and I, I'll talk to a woman. She'll go, yeah, I tried the submission thing. Good. Did, did you try it because you were being humble and you loved God and you trusted God to care for you no matter what your stupid husband did? Or did you just try it because you thought maybe that would work? I thought maybe that would get me my way. Okay. And now I'm trying the control thing because that seems to be more effective. Right? The husbands lead the same screwed up way. Our relationships have been messed up because of the fall with each other. Shows up with Cain and Abel. The first time it really shows up is the murder of Abel, right? Conflict that happens. Third, our relationship with creation has been forever marred. We have physical consequences of pain and suffering. If you look at 316 there, to the woman, he said, I'll surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. We've all whoever is anyway married or um, a woman who's had a child or any of that, you've all experienced that. We all know that's true. Pain and childbearing has come physical pain. Our relationship with creation is not what, what, is not what it was supposed to be. The other part of it is death. Right has come. So you have pain and suffering and death. Look at what happens to the man. Verse 17, Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread to return to the ground for you are out for out of it. You were taken for you were dust and to dust. You shall return. In other words, you will painfully labor and toil. You will suffer. You weren't meant to do that. Work was meant to be a joy, but now it will be a burden for you. Childbearing was meant to be a joy, but now it will be painful. Our relationship with the creation has changed, but also so has death changed our relationship with creation. And now we return to the dust, which is why Paul says in Romans 8 that the creation is longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Why is the earth waiting for us because we weren't supposed to be buried there. And so the earth is longing for the resurrection of our bodies, Paul says in Romans 8, because our relationship with the creation has been screwed up by the fall. Now, look, if I left you there at the fall, if I left you there, you'd be tempted to do one of two things. Tempted to despair and say, forget it. I may as well run after my sin. Or I'd be tempted to say, I better clean up my act. And assert my own righteousness. Because those would be your only two options if I left you there. Either way, you'd be missing the gospel. The good news. You'd be missing the word that I said at the beginning of the sermon. I'm not allowed to mention in public forums where students are present. Which is Jesus. Your only hope. What people need to hear is the gospel. They need to hear about Jesus. They need to hear their only hope out of spiritual death and lostness is him. The truth I want you to see and that I pray people in this community would see. And I pray people around the world will see is the truth about Jesus Christ and all his glory. Is the fact that Jesus did what we've failed to. I want you to hear this. I want to end with this. And I've read this to you before. I don't want you to despair and try to clean or try to clean yourselves up. I don't want you to do either one of those things. 
But I, I want you to hear about Jesus and rejoice in him. And so listen to this. I want to conclude with it. The fall brings unrighteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. The fall brings us spiritual ignorance. Jesus is our wisdom. The fall makes us lost. Jesus seeks and saves the lost. The fall makes us guilty. Jesus takes our guilt upon himself. The fall leaves us naked and ashamed. Jesus is our covering. The fall leaves us fearful of God. Jesus reconciles us to God and gives us boldness to approach the throne. The fall leaves us faithless. Jesus is our faithfulness. The fall leaves us in disobedience. Jesus was obedient even to death on a cross. The fall leaves us as idolaters. Jesus glorified only the Father. The fall leaves us in lust. Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. The fall leaves us in our lying. Jesus is the truth. The fall leaves us in broken relationships and conflict. Jesus is our peace. The fall leaves us in racism and social strife. Jesus makes us one new man. The fall leaves us in pain and suffering. Jesus suffered for us and is the ultimate healer who will restore all things. The fall leaves us in physical or leaves us to physical death. Jesus is our resurrection. The fall leaves us blind. Jesus opens our eyes. The fall leaves us deaf. Jesus gives us ears to hear. The fall leaves us hard-hearted. Jesus gives us new hearts. The fall leaves us in our slavery to sin. Jesus gives us freedom. The fall leaves us in darkness. Jesus is the light of the world. The fall leaves us groping for treasure in this world and awaiting certain eternal punishment. Jesus is our treasure and our eternal reward. Let me pray. Lord, we recognize the truth of the fall in our own lives. We see its effects and its fruit. Lord, we are grieved by our sin and its destructiveness. And Lord, at the same time, we are thankful for Jesus. For he was everything that Adam was meant to be, but failed. Everything that Israel was meant to be, but failed. Everything that we were meant to be, but failed. He was righteous. He was obedient. He was one who lived for the glory of his father only. Lord, we're thankful for him. We know we can't do it. Lord, without our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, we would be left to our despair or to our sad and lame attempts to be holy. Lord, we know because of him, we are left with the privilege of rejoicing in him. We are left as those who are declared righteous and will be glorified in your holiness and see you for all your worth for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. The bank, come forward. We're going to take communion. Uh, I want to...